السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Can someone just give me a uh, quick sound check please, mic check طيب بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صلي وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد So uh, welcome back to another lesson with QP and alhamdulillah we are going through the tafsir of surah at-teen so last week we began with the tafsir of surah at-teen and before i uh, go on to our last week summary before i forget i have a quick announcement which is that alhamdulillah the app that we have for um for the uh, class uh, you can now enable comments on this so you can see comments and you can comment on the app as well and that should be working fine so inshallah if you have the app that you're using in order to access these classes and so on, then the comment section should now be working, right? So inshallah, that should be something which uh, which has been fixed on mobile devices and on tablets as well. So uh, last week we began with the tafsir of Surah Al-Teen, and we mentioned that this surah has a number of names by which it is known. The first of which is Al-Teen, which is the common name that we know it by. The second name is Surah Wat-Teen, with the wow at the end, which is the beginning of the first verse. And the third name that it is known by is the complete first verse of the surah, which is Watini wa Zaytun. And we also mentioned that the opinion of the majority of the scholars of tafsir is that this is a Makki surah, a surah that was revealed before the hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ to Medina. And we said that, that was the position of the vast majority of the scholars of tafsir to the extent that some of them, like Ibn Atiyah and others, even said that that was an issue of ijma' of consensus. Even though other scholars mentioned a narration from Ibn Abbas, Radiyallahu anhuma, uh, that seems to state that this surah was a Madani surah in his opinion. But Ibn Abbas has both statements. So it seems likely that maybe one of them, the latter, is a mistake. And Allah Azza knows best. But either way, it is the position of the overwhelming majority of the scholars of tafsir that it is a Makki surah. And then we kind of went through the first three verses uh, in terms of the tafsir that we did. So where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, wa-tini wa-zaytun wa-turi sinin. Allah takes an oath by a number of things in these three verses. The first of them is by the fig, the second is by the olive, the third is by the Mount Sinai, and the fourth is by the sacred city, which is the city of Mecca. And we mentioned the difference of opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir concerning the tafsir of these verses. So we said that amongst the scholars of tafsir were those who said that Watin was Zaytun, the fig and the olive, is to be taken as uh, as its literal meaning, that Allah Azza is literally taking an oath by the fig and by the olive. That's a opinion that we found amongst a number of the scholars of tafsir. And then the second opinion seemed to be of those scholars who said that it stands for something as well. So yes, it is the fig and the olive, but it's referring to more than just the two uh, items of food of the fig and the olive. It's referring to the lands in which you find that it, that is grown or it is commonly grown amongst the Arabs. And that is the land of uh, of Jerusalem, right, the land of Baytul Maqdis, uh, and they said therefore that that is also the place where uh, Isa salam is known to have lived, and inshallah ta'ala he will, uh, by Allah's permission, he will descend towards end of time, and that was also a position amongst some of the scholars, and some of the scholars, as we mentioned last week, we went through the different uh, statements that they had amongst tafsir, some of them said it is the mosque of uh, Nuh salam, the one that was on Judi, Others said that no, it is uh, it is Iliya, which is Jerusalem, and, and so on. We went through all of that in Damascus. 
in terms of the second verse, وطور السينين, we also said that some of the scholars said that it refers to a mountain that is good. Others said it refers to a mountain that has vegetation that grows upon it. And yet others said that it is the mount of Musa alayhi salatu wassalam. So again, therefore, we have the mention of another Prophet of Allah Azza wa Jal, the Prophet Musa alayhi salatu wassalam. And then the third verse, which is وَهَذَا الْبَلَدِ الْأَمِينَ By the sacred city, we said, as Ibn Atiyah and others said, that by consensus of the scholars of tafsir, it is referring to none other than the city of Mecca, and therefore it has connotations to, you could say the Prophet Ibrahim السلام, but more, uh, you know, more importantly, our Prophet wasallam. So that's where we kind of left it, and then uh, I said that, that this week, inshallah ta'ala, we would go on to the two different approaches amongst the scholars of tafsir on how to understand these verses. So in terms of, uh, do we just take them to be literal or do we go through and take the meaning of what is being intimated by some of those views in amongst the scholars of tafsir. But before we do that, I gave a uh, research question that last week as well. And that was because in the second verse of this surah, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَطُورِ سِينِينَ We had the statement of some of the scholars of tafsir that the word sinin is a word that originally comes from a non-Arabic language, say a different language, and that word was then Arabized, it became part of the Arabic dictionary and the Arabic language. And so the issue that then that brought up from a um, from a ulum and Quran, from a Quranic sciences point of view, from a sort of tafsir point of view, was the question of whether in in the Quran there are non-Arab words, non-Arabic words rather, whether in the Quran you can have non-Arabic words. And I said to you, Last week, so that's what I wanted you to discuss and to look at. And I broke that down further for you. So any of you that have anything, inshallah, you can share that now. Um, and I broke that down further for you into three categories. So just to go through that so that, inshallah, ta'ala, that's clear. The first category and the first two of the three categories, we said there was consensus upon, ijma'ah. There is agreement amongst the scholars. And the third one is where the difference of opinion was and that's where, or is, and that's where I wanted you to look into it and give me back your research. The first two categories that the scholars agreed upon, the first is that they had no difference of opinion, that the Qur'an does not consist of a group of, word, of words or a, uh, a complete verse in the Qur'an that is non-Arabic. So you may have, uh, you know, you don't have like three or four words in succession next to one another. You don't have a verse or half a verse or part of a verse that is non-Arabic by ijma' of the scholars of tafsir because of the many verses in the Qur'an in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says بِلِسَانٍ عَرَبِيٍ مُبِينٍ This Qur'an is a clear Arabic Qur'an إِنَّا نَزَلْنَاهُ قُرْآنًا عَرَبِيًّا We have revealed this Qur'an as an Arabic Qur'an. That's the first category and there is ijma' upon that issue. The second uh, category upon which there is also ijma' and consensus is that there are in the Qur'an names that are non-Arabic, non-Arabic names. So whether that's the names of individuals or whether that's the name of places, alam, asma, names of people. So for example, the Prophets, prophets that are non-Arabs, their names are non-Arabic, right? Originally Ibrahim and Ismail and Ishaq and the Prophets of Bani Israel and others. And even to the extent that some of the scholars said that even the names of the angels Jibreel and Mikael are originally non-Arabic words or non-Arabic names. And so there is no difference of opinion concerning that also. That is also something which is accepted by the scholars of tafsir. The issue, therefore, the category that remains, the third category over which there is a difference of opinion, is whether or not there are other, without, uh, apart from the words or the names, rather, of places and people, whether there are other words of Arabic 
in the Quran that are non-Arabic in their form. So for example, this word sinin, sinin in, in the second verse of Surah Al-Teen, or the word sundus in the Quran, or the word istabraq in the Quran. Are they Arabic words or are they non-Arabic words? And then depending upon that, is, in the, is there in the Quran words that are non-Arabic? Right? That's what the issue came down to. So if anyone has anything regarding that, I don't know if anyone put anything onto the group. Uh, I wasn't able to check before I came on. But anyway, uh, if you can uh, put up your comments here, inshallah ta'ala, in the comment section, and we can see if anyone was able to find that. And if you were able to find it or if you struggled to find something, that would also be good to know. Uh, it, would, it would help me uh, very much in that sense as well. So, uh, and just to mention to you the statement of Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala concerning those first two, uh, two categories, he says in the introduction of his tafsir, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, There is no difference of opinion amongst the Imams, that there is not in the Qur'an words or words together that are non-Arabic, meaning, you know, part of a verse or half a verse or a verse, there is no difference of opinion that that does not exist in the Qur'an. And also that in the Qur'an there are names that come from non-Arabic uh, non-Arabic languages, from other than Arabic names. And he gives the example of Israel and Jibril and Imran and Nuh and Lut. Right? And so he mentions these particular names as being names that are non-Arabic. Right? But this is the third category that I wanted to know about. So if anyone has anything, uh, please let me know. And if not, then inshallah ta'ala, I will, I will go through uh, what the position is amongst the scholars of tafsir. And there is a difference of opinion concerning this. So, I'll just give you a bit of time to do that. And whilst you're, you're doing that, let us continue with our tafsir as to where we were upon. And that is basically we come now to the issue of these three verses in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes four oaths. So two oaths in verse number one by the fig and the olive verse number two by the Mount Sinai, and verse number three by the sacred city of Mecca. The scholars of tafsir have two approaches in their overall tafsir of these three verses. The first approach is the approach of those scholars who say that they are taken literally, and they don't mean anything else, they don't denote anything else, they're not pointing towards any other deeper meaning. We take them as they are mentioned in the Qur'an at face value, literally. And the second approach amongst the scholars of tafsir were those scholars who came and said, no, actually, yes, we take them literally, but there is also a, another meaning here, and that is that Allah takes an oath by these four things and groups them together at the beginning of Surah Al-Teen because they are pointing towards something else. Right? And we can see, as we mentioned last week in the statements of the scholars of Tafsir, that you have both approaches even going back to the early generations of the companions and the Tabi'een. And that shows you therefore that that approach, either both approaches amongst the scholars of Tafsir are valid approaches. Those types of contemplations are valid contemplations for someone to draw out from one of them that actually is referring to the lands in which certain prophets came to is a valid contemplation, a valid tafsir. Why? Because its essence and basis is found amongst the early scholars of tafsir and the early generations of Muslims. And that is an important principle of tafsir as we've mentioned before. So in order to make sure that your contemplations of the Qur'an, your understanding of the Qur'an, your reflections over the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are correct, they must be based upon Tafsir, for you to come out with something that has no basis in any sort of tafsir is where the problem would lie and Allah Azza wa knows best. So the first of those two approaches was the approach of taking those verses just to be literal. Right? And a number of scholars held this approach from amongst the most uh, well-known of them is perhaps Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala in his tafsir. 
And he said, and actually what is the correct position in this is that you hold it to be literal. And he says, and that's because we don't leave what is literal in the Qur'an and go to something which is metaphorical, except unless we have a clear dalil, a clear evidence. But rather Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took an oath by a teen, by the fig, and he's giving his own uh, interpretation as to why it should be literal, why we don't need to see that the fig and the olive refer to certain lands and the mountain and so on. He says, Rahimallah uh, ta'ala, as for the, the fig, he says that's because it is the uh, the leaves, it is the leaves of that particular tree, the fig tree, that were the ones that were used by Adam السلام, when he covered his nakedness in Jannah. When Allah says, يَخْصِفَانِ عَلَيْهِمَا مِنْ وَرَقِ الْجَنَّةِ When Adam السلام, realizes his nakedness and he covers himself in Jannah, he says that it is said that they were the leaves of the fig tree. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by the fig tree because it is something which is a blessed in itself and its fruit and the food that it provides. And it is something which is, he says, rahimahullah ta'ala, nice to look at and pleasant to eat. And it is something which people enjoy having. And he says, rahimahullah ta'ala, that he takes an oath by the olive because of the verse in the Quran which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the verse of light in Surah An-Nur. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the light and he says that it's 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 fuel, if you like, it's oil. يُقَدُ مِنْ شَجَرَةٍ مُبَارَكَةٍ زَيْتُونَ it is lit from an oil that is from a olive tree, right from the olive tree, a blessed tree. And, and he said, and it is well known that it has many, many benefits in terms of its food and in terms of its oil and in terms of its many uses that the Arabs were well known to use. And so that was the position of Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala. And also from the scholars who then took that position after him, uh, and there are a number of them, but I will mention to you uh, Imam Al-Qurtubi, and the other one who, who mentions this clearly in his tafsir is Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shaqiti Rahimahullah Ta'ala. He said, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, in his tafsir, rather to hold that the fig and the olive are, uh, are, are metaphorical, or meaning that they are referring to the lands in which they are grown, he said there is no evidence for this. And so therefore what is best is to refer to them in the literal sense, meaning that Allah Azzawajal is taking an oath by them literally and not for any other reason. Right, that's the first approach. So the fig, the olive, the mountain, the city of Mecca are mentioned. They are things that Allah Azzawajal takes an oath by and is simply done because of those things in and of themselves. There is no deeper or greater meaning behind this. That's the first approach. The second approach amongst the scholars of tafsir are those who said that actually no, there is another meaning. And yes, we take them to be literal that Allah Azzawajal takes an oath by the fig and the olive and by the mountain and by the city of Mecca. But it's also because these three places or the three places that you find these four things are places in which they are the lands of many of the prophets. Right? And not all of the prophets because there are prophets who came from other than Jerusalem and other than uh, Mecca and so on. But they are the place that we know that many of the prophets of Bani Israel and many of the Arab prophets and so on, they came from that general area. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by those lands. And from the scholars who held this position was Al-Imam Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his tafsir. And he said, and some of the scholars said that these are three places that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent from each one, some of the greatest of his prophets, and each one of those prophets is from the Ulul Azm, from the prophets of high motivation or, or high aspiration uh, and high conviction. He said, as for the first place, it is the place where you find 
the land of figs and olives. And there is Baytul Maqdis where you find that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the Prophet Isa alayhi salatu wassalam. And as for the second, it is Turi Sinin. And that is the mountain of Tur that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spoke upon it to the Prophet Musa alayhi salatu wassalam. And the third is the city of Mecca. And that is the sacred land that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made sacred and from which he sent our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And Ibn Kathir takes this from his teacher uh, and from the scholars of our tradition and our uh, the scholars of tafsir who greatly championed this particular position was the teacher of Ibn Kathir and that is Abu Abdullah ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala. Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala in his commentary upon these verses, he also uh, took this position. And he said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose these three places, meaning Jerusalem, and the place of Turi Sinin and the city of Mecca, because that is where you have some of the greatest of Allah's prophets who brought the greatest of the sharia's of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to some of the greatest nations that Allah to whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent prophets and messengers. He said, and this was not just the position of myself, but it's the position of a number of the scholars of tafsir, as we mentioned last week, is referring to those scholars who said that the meaning of a teen and a zaytun refers to the mosques of those lands and those places, that we mentioned the statements of them last week. He said, as for the teen, the fig, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions it because it is something which is a beautiful fruit to eat. He said that it is the size of a single mouthful, meaning it's small in size, easy to handle. And it is something which is not only a fruit, but it is something which also gives sustenance. And it's something which people use as a staple food in certain lands. Not only that, but it is said that it is used also in medicines. And it's something which is pleasant to eat, pleasant to hold, pleasant to smell, and pleasant to have within the diet that you consume. And then he mentions something similar concerning the zaytun, the olive, he says that it is from the great signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the many benefits that he has placed within the olives in terms of its actual eating, the eating of the olive, or whether it's from its uh, oil and the many benefits that it has in terms of applying it in different ways and using it for medicinal purposes and so on and so forth. And he says, and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by these two places. And then Allah azza wa jalla takes an oath by the mountain of Sinin. Where the, Prophet, where the Prophet Musa السلام, was spoken to directly by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Allah takes an oath by the city of Mecca, which is the place of our Prophet right? And this is something, and this is me summarizing his position. And from the scholars who also took the position of Ibn Kathir and Ibn Qayyim before him was Sheikh Abdurrahman ibn Sa'di rahimahullah and his student Sheikh Muhammad ibn Salih al-Uthaymin alayhim rahmatullahi jami'an. And so you have both of these positions and no doubt they are both valid positions in terms of tafsir because as we said, there are a number of scholars who took those positions from amongst the early scholars of tafsir. So now then what remains is, is it therefore, which position do we take, which position to, do we consider to be stronger? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, but it is possible to say that both are strong because I don't actually see that there is a great deal of um, of conflict or contradiction in the two approaches. There are some scholars who say that you don't need to go a step further, just take them literally. But those scholars who went a step further didn't do so, number one, because it's not something which is based in tafsir. We've seen statements of the early scholars of tafsir 
from the tabi'een and others with those statements, number one. That's the first point. The second point is that they don't denounce the literal meaning. Even in the statements, as you can see, of Ibn Qayyim, he goes on to list the benefits of the fig and the olive and so on. So he's accepting the literal tafsir that we uphold, the literal meaning of the Qur'an. But he's saying it's also possible to understand from the statements of the early scholars that Allah is also showing to us and highlighting to us the importance of these different lands, not because just of the blessing of the land, but because to show of uh, to show the importance of the prophets and messengers that came from those lands, and in particular, these three prophets of Allah, Ali wassalam, Isa, Musa, and our Prophet wassalam, right? And then I have come across other scholars who have even taken it a step further, if you like, and said that, and this is more that double, this is more their contemplation. They are actually what the teen and the zaytun and the tur, the mountain and the uh, the city refers to. It's referring to people's uh, different uh, personalities, right? Because as we know in the Quran, the uh, or as we know rather from the Sunnah, the personality of Musa salam and Isa salam is very different. Right? And the Prophet وسلم, mentioned this in a number of a hadith where he compared Abu Bakr as having the personality of Isa salam and Umar as having the personality of Musa salam. And so some of the scholars that I've heard of, of, of our times, more contemporary times, say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala take, takes an oath by these four things to show different personalities and different character traits and attributes that you find amongst different types of people. So for example, some people are like the teen, the fig, meaning that they're sweet, right? They're good company, they're always nice to be around, they're very smiling, very open, very generous, very, and so that's their personality. And other people are like the zaytun, like the olive, they're pure, right? They're very, very pure. They're people of strong, in- strong integrity, of strong principle. They're people that you would trust. They're people that you, you know, if, the, if you have a dispute or you have an issue, or if you want someone to take a fatwa from, these people are pure. These are the people that you go to because you, you understand them in terms of purity, right? And that's different to a person who may have a sweet personality but may not necessarily have that level of integrity and purity. And then you have people who are strong, right? Like the mountain, Tori Sinin. People who are strong, who give you comfort, who give you confidence. And then there are people who make you feel safe, like the sacred city of Mecca. They give you that feeling of safety, of security. You like to be in their company because they make you feel safe. And no doubt the Prophet wasallam was someone who combined all of this. And that's what made him والسلام, amazing in the way that he was وسلم, as Allah says, Indeed, you are upon an exalted station of character. Because the Prophet ﷺ had all of those different personalities. He had the personality or the, the traits of Musa السلام, and he had the traits of Isa السلام, and he was able to combine between the two. And in fact, some of the scholars of Islam, just as a, as a tangent, as a side point, Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, and others mention that the Prophet ﷺ surrounded himself by these two particular companions, Abu Bakr and Umar because of their varying personalities. In fact, sometimes you would probably even say that they were kind of polar opposites in their characters, right? That there was a difference between them, that one is extremely soft and gentle and kind and known to be someone who is very soft-hearted, and that's Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. And then you have other one who's known to be slightly uh, more strict and slightly more strong and slightly more, even if you like it, harsh in certain times, and that is Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And that is because the Prophet ﷺ wanted a balance between the two. And so you have people that will 
uh, encourage you and that's a good sign of leadership as some of the scholars mentioned Ibn Taymiyyah and others that you have people around you who encourage you to be forgiving and, and strong and, be, and uh, sorry forgiving and kind and merciful and generous but at the same time you have people around you who tell you don't be careful right you don't want to be someone who's always taken advantage of because you're always forgiving and overlooking and people think that they can run rings around you but rather you should also have someone who's a strong personality right people who are strong in front of them and that's why uh, some of the scholars said that uh, Abu Bakr an, when he became the Khalifa, he chose as the leader of his army, the general of his armies, Khalid ibn Walid an, because Abu Bakr was soft in personality. He had Abu Umar with him and he had Khalid ibn Walid who were different to him in terms of personality. They were you know, kind of like the other side of the spectrum, the other side of the scale. And so that's to offer that balance. And that's why Abu Bakr an, used to say about Umar an, that if people come to me and think that I'm too soft and gentle, they'll be careful because they know standing next to me is Umar an, right? And they know that even if I'm soft, Umar is there with his stick. And so that's the same thing. And then when Umar an becomes Khalifa, who does he appoint as the general of his armies? He appoints Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah radiallahu anhu. And Abu Ubaidah was very similar in his character to Abu Bakr and also known for his softness and his gentleness So anyway, that's something which you'll find that some of the scholars commented and it's a very interesting uh, analysis of, 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 of uh, the way that the Prophet surrounded himself by different personalities and that's important. Right? And that's why if you were to study, and it's an amazing thing that if someone was to actually look at this and write on this or even um, you know pay attention to the personalities that, that surrounded the Prophet and I don't mean in terms of their in terms of their virtues and their and their station, but I mean actually in their personality character traits. How the Prophet would give more attention to Abu Hurairah in certain aspects and companions like him because he understood their capacity and ability to memorize hundreds and hundreds of narrations. And that's very different to the way that he gives that same type or a different type of attention and focus to another companion whose niche or whose strength may be in a different field, right? Maybe it's the recitation of the Quran, or maybe it's, for example, charity, or maybe it's, for example, leadership and something else. So it's very different the way the Prophet ﷺ does that. And that's why when the Prophet then dies, he leaves behind a generation of leaders. You have people who excel in very many different things, right? And from amongst the people who are successful are people who are able to do that, whether it's amongst their family members or amongst their students or amongst their employees, if it's in a business sense, that you have people that can come together and they can help one another and play to each other's strengths and help one another with their with their weaknesses. So um, so this, this is also something which I find amongst some of the scholars, as I was saying, that some of them said that it's referring to personality traits. So I think that they took it a step further. They looked at the personality of the prophets that are being referred to in these verses by some of the scholars of tafsir and they said that that's basically what it's referring to it's also or it's possible also rather to look at it from a different angle and that is the different um the different personality and character traits that uh, that different people may possess and allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best okay i've seen that no one's uh, put into the comments anything concerning the research question so i assume that either uh, you were able to find anything or you struggled with this particular issue. So let me go back and... Um, okay, very good. Zakallah khair, sorry. So let's go back to the issue. So as we said, three categories. The first category, there's no difference of opinion in, and that is that there is not more than a number of words together in the Quran that are non-Arabic. 
Number two, the second category, no difference of opinion, that there are names that are non-Arabic in the Qur'an, as Imam Al-Qurtubi gave a number of examples. The third issue, therefore, is are there other Arabic words, just one-off words that are mentioned in the Qur'an, that happen to be non-Arabic. So, for example, like the word Sinin, and like, for example, Tur, uh, and like, for example, Istabraq and Sundus, and many others. This is where there is a difference of opinion concerning. And the first position uh, amongst the scholars, and there are three positions that you will find amongst the scholars of, of Qur'an. The first of them is that there is no such thing as a non-Arabic word in the Qur'an, other than names. Right? As, as, apart from names, there is no such thing as an Arabic non-Arabic word in the Qur'an. And from amongst the scholars who, um, who greatly supported this, and, and they even said that this was the opinion of the majority of the scholars, that they said that there's non-Arabic, there is no non-Arabic words in the Quran. But from the famous scholars who, who supported this and from the famous well-known scholars of Tafsir and Quran was number one, Al-Imam al-Shafi'i, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. He supported this in his book. If you go through Al-Risal and Al-Um, he greatly supported this in his own writings. And Al-Imam al-Tabari, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. And they are, as you know, two of the great scholars of Tafsir and Quran in general. And amongst the scholars who also then supported this is a number of them from the scholars of Arabic language, Abu Ubaid and Ibn Faris, and many others. This is some of the scholars said the opinion of the majority. And Imam Az-Zarkashi, Ta'ala, in his book on the sciences of the Quran called Al-Burhan, Fi Ulum Al-Quran, also took this position and he supported it. And basically what they're using as evidence is are all of those verses in the Quran that say that the Quran is an Arabic Quran. Right? So the verse in Surah Al-Shu'ara, Bilisan in Arabi Mubin, the verse in Surah Al-Ra'ad, وَكَذَلِكَ أَنزَلْنَاهُ حُكْمًا عَرَبِيًّا The verse in Surah Al-Shura, وَكَذَلِكَ أَوْحِيْنَا إِلَيْكَ قُرْآنًا عَرَبِيًّا The verse in Surah Al-Zukhruf, إِنَّا جَعَلْنَاهُ قُرْآنًا عَرَبِيًّا عَرَبِيًّا لَعَلَّكُمْ تَعْقِنُونَ The verse in Surah Al-Zumar, قُرْآنًا عَرَبِيًّا غَيْرَ ذِي عِوَجٍ لَعَلَّهُمْ يَتَّقُونَ And all of those verses are essentially saying the same thing, and that is that this is an Arabic Quran. So they said that Allah Azza wa Jal mentions in numerous places in the Quran that it is an Arabic Quran and therefore, therefore, because it is an Arabic Quran, there is no non-Arabic word found within it. There is no non-Arabic word found within it. The second position is the position that is attributed to a number of scholars from amongst them Mujahid and Ikrimah from the students of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah and it's even said that Ibn Abbas himself affirm this position and that's basically based upon them all having statements of saying that such and such a word is a Persian word, such and such a word is an Aramaic word or it's a Syriac word or it's an Abyssinian word and so basically these scholars then extrapolate from those statements of these Imams that therefore they're affirming that there is in the Quran words that are non-Arabic, right? They don't have a, a, as far as I know, a very, um, an open, uh, very, uh, if you like, a very clear statement, an express statement saying that there are non-Arabic words in the Quran. It's extrapolated from them, their commentary on certain words as being non-Arabic. And from the scholars who also took this position was Ibn Atiyah, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his tafsir that there are certain words in the Qur'an that are non-Arabic. And some of the scholars also accepted this. And from amongst the scholars who, who also supported this, from the famous scholars, uh, in addition to Ibn Atiyah, from the latest scholars of tafsir, is Imam al-Suyuti, rahimahullah ta'ala. He mentions this book, uh, this in his book, um, uh, Al-Itqan, his book on, on Ulum al-Qur'an, Al-Itqan fi Ulum al-Qur'an. And he also mentions it in a book that he has, in which he wrote just specifically about this called Al-Muhadhab, fi ma waqa'a fi al-Qur'ani min al-Mu'arrab. Right, a small book that he wrote just particularly on this on this issue, 
and they will use as evidence those statements of the scholars of tafsir that said words like istabraq and sundus and others were words that were non-Arabic, right? as mentioned in the commentary of some of the scholars of tafsir. And they say there's no reason why it's not possible to have odd words of the Qur'an not being Arabic because even if you have done that then it doesn't go against those verses of the Qur'an those verses of the Qur'an are speaking generally about the Qur'an and the Qur'an still remains an Arabic Qur'an just because a few of the words happen to come from non-Arabic origins and the Prophet وسلم, as we know was sent to all of mankind not just to the Arabs and therefore it's possible that Allah placed within the Qur'an words that were of non-Arabic origin that's the first two positions so the first position being that it's something which is not possible the second one is that it's very much possible and it is present. The third one is the one that tries to reconcile, to combine between those two opinions. And that is that basically what they say, the combination or the reconciliation between those two positions is that they were words that were originally non-Arabic, but then they were Arabized. So the Arabs knew them as words, meaning that they weren't words that were placed into the Quran without the Arabs having already in, 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 um, incorporated them into their language. And so when they come, when it comes to the Quran, they were words that were well known amongst the Arabs as being words that they were that were common in their language, and that's something which therefore uh, kind of combines between the two. Those scholars who say that there were those statements of uh, those scholars of the Tabi'een, Iqrima, Mujahid, and others that say in the Quran there are non Arabic words. That's what they're referring to, meaning originally their origin may have come from Abyssinian or Persian or something else. And the statements of Imam Shafi and Tabri and others is that there's no non-Arabic words in the Quran because those words are no longer non-Arabic. They were incorporated by the Arabs and understood by the Arabs, the word istabraq and sundus and so on. Not necessarily by all of the Arabs, but they were words that were known in the Arabic language and were used by the cultured and educated amongst them, the poets and so on and so forth. And therefore, this is a reconciliation. This was the position of Abu Ubaid. And from the scholars who, uh, it seems, also kind of went towards this, and Allah knows best, but it seems that he kind of leaned towards his position, was Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti, rahimahullahu ta'ala. And he says, that, and it's even possible to say the opposite, meaning that these words were originally non-Arabic words, then they were taken by other people, other cultures, other languages, into their languages, and the Arabs kind of like lost them, or not lost them, but they became rare amongst them, they didn't use them as much, and then they were, you know, kind of revived, in the Quran and he says that's also possible as well and because we know that there are a number of languages Spanish and even English to some extent and others that have hundreds of words that come from Arabic right they had come from originally from the Arabic language and Allah knows best so those are the three positions and I think the position of reconciliation is a good position because I think that there's not necessarily a uh, a strong difference of opinion as it may seem that there is when you look at the, the strong statements, especially of the likes of Imam Shafi'i, Ta'ala, who's very adamant and very strict on this issue in terms of the statements that he makes. And I think that the difference of opinion Allah knows best, therefore, is not the way that it's understood by sometimes to mean. And that's why it's important to understand the uh, methodology of the scholars of tafsir in the way that they differ over these issues and how to reconcile between them. And Allah knows best. But that's basically what my conclusion was. Um, in terms of this, and as I said, uh, you know, there, this is an issue of difference of opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir, and you will find more uh, more regarding that in the books of Ulum al Quran. So, if you go to Zarkashi's book, Burhan, or Al Imam Suyuti's Al Itqan, and other books of that nature, then you will find this, inshallah. Ta'ala. Okay, so going back to our tafsir, we're now on verse number four. 
So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says after taking an oath by those four things in the first three verses, Allah then says in verse number four, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي أَحْسَنِ تَقْوِيمِ We created man in the finest of states. And no doubt this, as Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala says and Ibn Kathir and others, this is what is called the Jawab Al-Qasim. This is what Allah is taking an oath for. So what is Allah taking an oath by? The fig, the olive, the Mount of Sinai, the sacred city of Mecca. But why is Allah taking an oath? What is the oath for? That in Arabic is called Jawab Al-Qasim. And in the Arabic language, when you take an oath, the oath does not become a complete sentence. It is not fulfilled until what you have taken an oath for is also expressed or it is understood. And that's why when you, for example, were to say, if you were to take an oath and you were to say, Wallahi, by Allah, that doesn't mean anything written in and of itself. It's an incomplete word. It's an incomplete sentence because you've yet to specify and express what it is that you're taking an oath for. By Allah, I will make hajj. By Allah, so-and-so is truthful. By Allah, I will do this or that. That's where the oath becomes now jawabul qasim. And so the scholars of tafsir often you will find when Allah Azza wa takes an oath in the Quran, they look for where the jawabul qasim is. And often in the Quran, that jawabul qasim is mentioned expressed ex- expressly, it is mentioned clearly, and other times it is understood what Allah Azza wa is taking an oath by, and it's not necessarily mentioned openly, right? And I think we've already given examples of that. But this is the jawabul qasim in Surah Tutin. What is Allah taking an oath by or for? That indeed we created man in the best and finest of states, right? And that is what Allah Azza wa is taking an oath by. And Imam Al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that the word insan in this verse, uh, the word man, insan, does it refer to a particular person, a particular man, or is it general, meaning mankind in general? He said that some of the scholars of tafsir said that it refers to a particular uh, person, and it's a disbeliever. And it's referring to, for example, the likes of Al-Walid ibn Al-Mughira. So that's one position, right? That's referring to the disbelievers. This is a challenge to them. Because look at how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created you in the best of forms, right? With all of these amazing blessings in the way that your body works, in the way that your blood flows, in the way that your brain works, and the organs in your body, the way that you're able to breathe and your heart beats, and everything that we understand and know if we were to take a moment's reflection upon our body and the, and the many things that Allah Azza has placed within it. That is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is challenging these people with. Those people who deny Allah, worship other than Allah Azza wa Look at your own creation, right? Look at you. And as Allah Azza wa says in the other verse uh, in Surah Abasa, قُتِلَ الْإِنسَانُ مَا أَكْفَرَ Right? May man be killed, how ungrateful he is. مِنْ أَيِّ شَيْءٍ خَلَقَ From what was he created? مِنْ نُطْفَةٍ خَلَقَهُ فَقَدَّرَ Allah says that he was created from a drop of semen and then proportioned. ثُمَّ السَّبِيلَ يَسَّرَ and then he was given his path in life. And then Allah says he is given death and he is buried. And so Allah is saying that man doesn't even look towards their own creation and the blessings that Allah has placed within them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that such a person that doesn't even do this, that person is someone who doesn't appreciate Allah's many blessings upon them. Right? And so this is the position of uh, this is why uh, some of the scholars said that it's referring to a disbeliever, that it is a challenge towards them. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, as Imam Qurtubi says, that if you were to take this particular position, 
that it's referring to people like Al-Walid ibn Mughira and others from amongst the disbelievers of Quraysh, then he says that it's referring to those people, therefore, who rejected resurrection. These are people who denied Allah's ability to resurrect, that there would be an afterlife, that there would be some type of judgment and accounting. And it is because of that that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to them, right? And that's why Allah Azza will say later on in this surah, as we know, فَمَا يُكَذِّبُكَ بَعْدُ بِالدِّينَ أَلَيْسَ اللَّهُ بِحْكَمِ الْحَاكِمِينَ Where Allah refers to their denial of judgment and their denial of, of the accounting on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And so that's one position amongst you will find amongst the scholars of tafsir. But the position of the majority is that it is am, it is general, not referring to the disbelievers, not referring to a specific disbeliever from the people of Quraysh by way of example, but rather it is something which includes all humans. It is a reminder from Allah, a, uh, a message from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for all of us, Muslim, non-Muslim, believer, disbeliever, every one of us, that Allah Azza wa Jal from His greatest blessings upon us is that Allah Azza wa Jal created us in the best of states, right, in the finest of creations. And we know generally, uh, as Allah Azza wa Jal mentions in the Quran, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has favored the children of Adam in the way that He created us and the blessings that He gave to us. Allah says in the Quran, in Surah Al-Isra, وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي آدَمْ Indeed, we have favored and honored the children of Adam. And that's all humans, right? That's every single human. In the way that they were created, in the abilities that we have, in the intellect that Allah has given to us, in the way that we're able to understand and, and extrapolate and benefit from the resources that we have around us, right? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us that ability uh, to, to do so. And so Imam Al-Qurtubi mentions that the other statement is that it's referring to Adam and all of his children, meaning all of humankind. Allah says that we created you in the best of forms, in the best of states. But what does that mean, Ahsani Taqween? Right? What does it mean when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says we created you in the best of states? Qatada uh, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, Ahsani Taqween, ayfi Ahsani Surah, that the meaning of the best of states is meaning in the best of forms. Right? The human form is the best of forms. The fact that you have two legs, that you're able to stand upright, unlike many other animals who maybe have to have four legs, they can't stand upright, or maybe they have to crawl, or they're on their bellies because they don't have legs or feet. This form that Allah created humans in is the best of forms. Right? And we have the hadith in which the Prophet said وسلم, that the Prophet Adam السلام, was created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his form. Right? And Allah knows best the meaning of that form of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But it shows it to you that Allah Azza wa favored Adam salam because he gave him the best of forms subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala said something similar. He said the word taqweem means fi ahsani khalq, meaning that it is the best of creation. It is the best form that you can have. So better than the birds and their forms, better than the animals, the land mammals and the sea animals and so on, better than those other forms. And this was the position also mentioned by Mujahid rahimahullah ta'ala, the Ahsani Taqweem means Ahsani Khalq, in the best of creation or the best of form. And Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhum has said in one of the narrations upon him, uh, from him uh, in his commentary on this verse, he said, Fi a'dali khalq. A'dal means in the most balanced of ways. So you have the ability to stand, but you have arms as well. right? And that ability to be uh, to have dexterity, to have the ability to use your fingers in the way that you can, 
the ability to be able to see and hear and the ability to be able to move in the way that we move, all of those things. This is what is being referred to by Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah. No doubt that is from the greatest of blessings from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the way that he has created us. Al-Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that the meaning of this verse he said that you will find different statements amongst the scholars of tafsir as to what it's referring to so some of them said that it refers to the best of forms in the best of forms in the finest of states right? and that seems to be the position that was chosen by a number of the scholars of tafsir but also seems to be the position that was chosen by uh, the translation that I found which is of, of Professor Abdul Halim and if you give me just one second, I will look at the other translations as well that we have, just to see uh, if we have any others that may differ from it. So, Professor Abdul Halim says, We created man in the finest state. Mufti Taqi, we have created man in the best composition. Muhsin Khan, verily, we created man of the best stature and mold. Right? And that's A'dali Surah. Right, that's the statement of Ibn Abbas and Sahih International. We have certainly created man in the best of stature. Right, so uh, composition, state, stature, mold—they are very similar in meanings. So this was the position that was chosen by Ibn Abbas, as we mentioned, and Ibrahim al-Nakhai and Abu al-Aliya and Mujahid and Qatada. Right, this is the statement that is referring to the meaning of this verse as being in the best of form, the best of state. Other scholars, Al Imam al-Tabari, said. He said that it refers to uh, the creation of man being able to go from childhood to reach maturity and to be able to use the maximum of their abilities, their faculties, their strength that Allah has given to them. And so they are best in that way, meaning that they are best able to use their strengths and their abilities. And this, he said, is the statement of, of Ikrimah. He said, he said it is the young man or the young person who has all of their strength and all of their abilities. And there is a statement of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma of something similar. And that is that he said, Fi awwali ma nasha. He said a young person who has is at the height of their strength. Right? So when a person reaches the, the age of maturity, they have their full strength, they have their full ability. They said that that is what is, it is referring to. Another uh, opinion that Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala also mentions and he also attributes this to uh, Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma also is that it refers to the ability that we are created standing upright and that the vast majority of the animals, uh, if not all of them, are not created in that way. So the fact that our, you know, like a lot of animals, their head will be, uh, they're, they're kind of like hunched back, right? They're kind of like, uh, low down in the sense that they have four legs so their head is aligned with their back they can't stand upright or they can't stand upright for long and others that even can stand upright that they're on two legs don't have the ability to stand in the way that we stand with our hands and arms and so on and he said that that's what it's referring to he said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala favored us in this way because Allah made us unique from the other creations that he created from the animals and the fish and the birds and so on and that's the statement of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma. And then Imam al-Tabari chooses the one that he considers to be the strongest and that is the first position, that it's referring to the best of molds or the best of fashion or the best of stature. But in reality, in Allah knows best, I don't see a, uh, a contradiction between these three. 
uh, and the fact that Ibn Abbas has all three statements showed you that it is an example of one of the methodologies that we mentioned that the scholars of tafsir or some of them have and that is giving tafsir by way of example. So someone who is created in the best of form, the fact that therefore the third opinion that the best of form is the human form is not contradictory but it's complementary. And the fact that that's someone therefore the height of what you see the best of form being is a young person at the height of their their strength and their ability and their maturity that's something which also doesn't go against this tafsir it's not a contradiction but rather they complement one another and all three are positions that are stated of Ibn Abbas and remember the reason why Ibn Abbas and other scholars Iqrim and Mujahid will have varying statements is because they're made at different times so one person comes and says oh Ibn Abbas what does this verse mean and he says it means the best of form and another time someone else comes and asks him the same question, he gives him a different answer, but he means the same thing. Someone is at the height of their strength. And the third time he says, look at the difference between us and animals. Can't you see the difference in the way that Allah has created us? And so all three are not contradictory, but they are the same. right? And it's similar, and this is a methodology of the Prophet wasallam, as we know, because the Prophet wasallam, as we know, would sometimes be asked, O Messenger of Allah, what is the best deed in Islam? And he would say to pray prayer at its correct time. Another time he would be asked, and he would give a different answer, and the third time a different answer. And that's because he's looking at the person who's asking the question, not because it is a contradiction. Each one is best for that person. And so this is the methodology that you find being employed within the Sharia. Al-Imam Al-Qayyim, uh, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says in his commentary on this verse, he says that the people of Bani Israel were people who used to pay a lot of attention to what they could see around them, what they could sense. And they would give a, a lot of uh, a lot of emphasis and importance to that, and he said, and because the vast majority of people can only think or can only reflect on what they can see, what is in front of them, what they can witness, what they can touch, what they can hear, what they can see and visualize, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala mentions as one of His greatest blessings the creation of man, whether it's at the beginning of the creation of man or the end of the creation of man, but that cycle of life of being born and then being able to reach maturity and then dying at the end of that cycle, that's something which every person can witness and every person can see for themselves. And so Ibn Qayyim says, and that is why Allah in this surah, he speaks to this particular issue. He, seek, he speaks to this particular issue and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Al-Imam Ibn Sa'di, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says, Tamul khalq, mutanasibul a'da. It's referring to someone who is full, uh, Allah created people in the best of stature, meaning perfect in all of their uh, all of their organs, in all of their limbs, in the way that they stand, in everything. But he says not only that, but also in terms of their inner self as well. Meaning the fitrah that Allah places humans upon at the time of birth is also perfect. The fact that every child is born, worshipping Allah, believing in Allah alone, and then it's as we know, as the Prophet ﷺ said, their parents, external factors, their community, society in general, that changes them from that path of worshipping Allah into other religions or no religion or dismissing God altogether. But he said, and that ability to understand, to have that perfection inside and out, to have that completeness of, of creation that Allah has given to us externally and internally is from the greatest blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But he said, and the vast majority of people are ungrateful, are heedless are neglectful of this amazing blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this particular point is important. The fact that Ahsan al-Taqweem has two meanings, right? This is what Ibn Sa'di ta'ala is saying, and Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shawqiti said the same thing as well, that it refers to two types of complete 
uh, creation or two types of Ahsani uh, Taqweem is, is complete stature in two ways. Number one is the external form, uh, which we can see, which is our bodies and our limbs and so on and so forth. And number two is the internal spiritual form. So I don't mean by internal organs and blood and heart and whatever else. We mean by internal, by the spiritual form. The fact that Allah places Iman in the heart of every child, the fitrah, as we know, that natural inclination to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone is also from Ahsani Taqweem, right? And that is important to remember because that is not a meaning that you will often find in the books of tafsir. It's not a common meaning that you will find, especially in the classical works of tafsir. They will refer to the outer, but the inner is included within that. But it's something which would be known to those scholars of old. But it's something which obviously in our time we need to mention more explicitly. The fact that Allah has given that ability to people to understand that they should worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that tug of iman that is within each and every single person. That's also something which Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti rahimahullah ta'ala also mentions. And that brings us to the end of the tafsir of verse number four. And I think that's a good place therefore to stop before inshallah ta'ala next week we come on to uh, verses number five onwards. Okay, so if there's any questions inshallah, I will take some questions. Otherwise we'll conclude. Uh, Niaz is asking, it's been reported that the Prophet will recite Surah Tutin on his travels. Was this Surah single for travel? No. Uh, the narration mentions that the Prophet traveled on one occasion and he recited Surah Tutin. Just as on another hadith, you have that he recited Surah Zalzala or that he recited other Surahs. And so it's something which the Prophet is being uh, the companions notice as they narrated everything else that they notice about the Prophet But it does show a principle more generally, and that is that the Prophet when he was at times or in places where he thought that people you know, could do with a shorter prayer, because he's leading a congregation and there's people that are traveling, people that are tired, people that, you know, if you're traveling in a group, for example, you're on Hajj together, and you're traveling from one place to another, and it's taking you three hours to arrive to Arafah or to arrive to Muzdalif, and it's in the middle of the night, and people are tired, and they come through a very difficult journey. For the Imam to start now and start reciting, I don't know, Surah, you know, like Surah Yusuf or Surah Taha or something, isn't from Hikmah, right? It's not from the wisdom. And so the Prophet would choose Surahs that were applicable to the situation of the people. And so he would choose Surahs that most people would be able to bear. And Surah Tutin, as we know, is a relatively short Surah. And so that's the general principle that you find that the Prophet would have. But as for, is it something that he would specify, meaning that it's something that he always recited on his travels? Then no. But if you want to follow that sunnah meaning, that just as the Prophet did it once or on the odd occasion, that you do the same thing as you're traveling, then no doubt that's something, inshallah ta'ala, which is allowed and which is good. And Allah Azza wa knows best. Okay, Hadiya says, going back to a couple of classes ago when you mentioned Iman before Quran, what approach would you suggest when it comes to implementing the Quran? Do we implement the Quran in chronological order in Revelation or in the order that has been written today? So the meaning of that statement, which was the statement of Ibn Umar is that when the companions of the Prophet learned the Quran, it wasn't just the way that we often learn it, which is in a very academic way. But rather the sense of Iman in that is that you're acting upon it, that it's increasing your Iman, that you understand it, you're applying it in your Salah when you're reciting, you're applying it in his teachings, you're applying it because it's raising your Iman. And that was the way of the companions radiallahu anhum. And so uh, that's nothing to do with the, the chronological order of the Qur'an or anything else. That's to do with the methodology of how you learn the Qur'an and study the Qur'an and implement the Qur'an. That's what it's referring to. And so we've lost that ability now, right? 
we've lost that ability now and so that's something which is important that we regain but that's done through raising your iman in general in terms of softening your heart to the Quran and softening your heart to ibadah in general so that when the Quran is recited or when you come across a reflection or you're reading a tafsir and you hear something that is something which would make you cry you know a number of the scholars of, 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 um, of hadith for example when hadith would be recited to them especially if you're speaking about half-fire or paradise or about the Prophet وسلم, or something else you know, I've come across ulama and scholars who, for example, in, in some of the hadith that, that speak about, for example, the story of Aisha and her slander, عنها, it would bring tears to their eyes. And when they're hearing about how the Prophet was being punished or tortured by his people, it would bring tears to their eyes. That's iman, right? That's someone who's not just reading, but they're living through that. And that's how we should be with the Quran, with the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as well. As I said about al-imam al uh, I think it was Imam al-Hassan al-Basri rahimahullah that he would really be able to listen to or read or hear a few hadith except that it would bring tears to his eyes. That's a level of iman and that's what's being referred to. So when we make the Qur'an just an academic pursuit and we learn the Qur'an in that sense, it doesn't necessarily affect us. So someone can do the whole tafsir of the Qur'an, may Allah Azza save us from that, and they don't really necessarily become stronger in iman because they didn't learn the Qur'an in the way that it should be learned. That's what it's referring to. And so that's an issue more of us being able to study and, and, and connect with the Qur'an rather than a, in terms of how or which part of the Qur'an that you start from. The contemporary opinion that the fiqh olive are representing different personalities, does it have any precedent from early generations? Not that I've come across, but I think it's an extension of a being from the prophets. That's what it's referring to. So I think the scholars who said that took that as an extension that this, these lands are referring to these prophets and therefore by extension because it has, as we said in the Sunnah, a basis. The Prophet ﷺ spoke about the personalities of Musa and Isa السلام, and compared them to Abu Bakr and Umar right? And I think that's what it takes from. But like I said, as I've said before, uh, with contemplations, they are not tafsir. And it's not necessarily something that you're going to uh, you know, teach in that sense or, or whatever or attribute to a scholar or, or to any of the tabi'een or to a companion. But it's something which you can perhaps mention in passing as I did today, once you've established the correct opinion and understanding of the verses, and Allah knows best. Uh, Mukhlis is asking, in Egypt there is a mountain called Sinai. Is Sinin in the surah may mean that mountain? Allah knows best. As far as I know, uh, the Mount Sinai, in terms of exactly which one it is, Allah Azza knows best. And that's mentioned in you know certain books and certain uh, traditions and so on. But obviously the time lapse between Musa السلام, and between our Prophet وسلم, was a great many years and, whether, and there is no authentic narration that the Prophet وسلم, highlighted or pinpointed the Mount Sinai as far as I know. And so if is it that one or is it not that one or is it a different one? Allah knows best. I don't know. I have no information regarding that. So Jazakumullah khair, inshallah ta'ala, I think we will conclude there. Barakallahu feekum, and inshallah ta'ala, I will see you all next week. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wa sallamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.